Good evening. Um, thanks for coming. You're very welcome to this important event uh, in the um, Oxford Centre for Life Writing calendar. Um, I'm very pleased indeed to be introducing Adam Phillips uh, tonight. Adam Phillips is a psychoanalyst and a writer, perhaps also a philosopher, whose books and essays, which are of great renown and high intelligence and style, ask questions about how we live and understand our lives. They offer a peculiar and absorbing kind of wisdom and truthfulness, which is not prescriptive or polemical, but curious, inquiring, rational, and infinitely intriguing. Reading Adam Phillips is, to my mind, a bit like reading Proust or Henry James. That is, I read him for the characters and the fine attention to how people behave and to exercise my mind on complexity, but also for the feeling that he has recognized something about life, my life, in fact, which I hadn't up to then had the wit or the human uh, knowledge or the perceptiveness to get. So it's rather like hearing answers to questions you didn't know you needed to ask. Many of his books are about the stories we tell ourselves about our lives as distinguished from what our lives are actually like. So in his new book, Missing Out, he asks in a variety of ways what we do with the lives we haven't lived, the lives we would like to have lived, which run parallel with the reality. What kind of pleasure or distress, frustration or satisfaction arises from these compelling fantasies that we carry around with us? And going further, why do we need to know the answers to these questions? Can we live perfectly well an unexamined life in which explanations and self-knowledge are beside the point? Is making sense of our lives an imposed obligation, even a tyranny? Adam Phillips is very down on tyranny, and in all his books he much prefers scepticism and uncertainty to dogmatism and conviction, open-endedness and ambivalence to doctrinaire simplifications. It strikes me that in all this, many of his concerns are those of the biographers. I'm always interested in reading or writing biography in the life not lived, the alternative choices that stretch away from or on either side of the life we actually observe. And I'm also very interested in whether the biographer has an obligation to certainty, to making up their mind, to laying down the law about the subject's life. So it is in a way not surprising that Adam Phillips is working on a biography of Freud and that that is what he's here to talk about. Not surprising since Freud inhabits every book of his and since he's also the series editor of the Penguin Freud New Translations. But it is also surprising since he has on the whole been rather quizzical or critical about biography. And as he puts it, the tension it creates between what the subject wanted to be and what the biographer wants the subject to be. Biographies, he says, give shape to a life, but a life doesn't. This scepticism about biography has a great deal to do with Freud, who was always very discouraging, indeed vituperative, about the possibility of biographical truth. Freud insisted that the true story of a life is as inaccessible to the biographer uh, uh, as, uh, as it might be to, to any other observer, and that in any case the motives of, of the biographer are as suspect as those of the analyst. Yet he was fascinated by biography as well as profoundly suspicious of it. There may be something of that duality in Adam Phillips' own approach to this mighty task. Perhaps he will tell us. Please make him very welcome.
There are two epigraphs to this lecture. Can everybody hear? Um, the first one is from Gertrude Stein's Stanzas in Meditation, 1932. I have lost the thread of my discourse. It does not matter if we find it. And the second quotation is from <coughs> Roland Barthes' autobiography, Roland Barthes by Roland Barthes, which is... <clears throat> What right does my present have to speak of my past? Has my present some advantage over my past? The story of Freud's life is easily told. He was born in 1856 in Freiburg in Moravia, a town now called Pribor in the Czech Republic, but then part of the Habsburg Empire. 150 miles north of Vienna, it was a small market town, almost entirely Catholic, with a tiny Jewish community. Freud's father was a merchant trading mostly in wool, and Sigmund Freud was the first of seven children, five daughters and two sons, of his father's second marriage to a woman 20 years younger than himself. Jacob Freud had two sons from a previous marriage. His business collapsed when Freud was three and a half, and the family moved first to Leipzig in Germany for a year, and then on to Vienna, where Freud lived until 1938. Freud went to the Spell Gymnasium, a school in Vienna, in 1865, and after briefly considering a career in law, Freud studied medicine at the University of Vienna between 1873 and 1882, specialising in his third year in comparative anatomy. After research in physiology, but with no obvious professional prospects, he went in 1885 to study for several months in Paris with the great neurologist Charcot returning in 1886 to set up his own private practice as docent in neuropathology. In the same year, after a four-year engagement, he married Martha Bernays, a woman five years younger than himself and the granddaughter of a distinguished German-Jewish family. Her grandfather had been the chief rabbi of Hamburg. The couple had six children, three daughters and three sons in fairly quick succession. In 1896, Freud's father died at the age of 81. Through through extensive clinical work, at first using the method of hypnotism on so-called hysterical patients, and through a series of passionate relationships with men, most notably Joseph Breuer, who he met in the 1870s, Wilhelm Fleiss, who he met in Berlin, and then after the turn of the century with younger men, Carl Jung, Alfred Adler, Carl Abraham, Ferenczi, and Rank, Freud invented the clinical practice of psychoanalysis. He first used the term in 1896. Psychoanalysis was, as one early patient called it, a talking cure, the doctor and the patient doing nothing but talk together. The patient lay on a couch with the analyst sitting behind him and was instructed to free associate, i.e. say whatever came into his head, including his dreams, undistracted by the analyst's responses, with the doctor clarifying and interpreting and reconstructing the patient's childhood experiences, but not using drugs or physical contact as part of the treatment. The aim was the modification of symptoms and the alleviation of suffering through redescription. A prolific writer from 1886 to his death in 1939, Freud published what in the standard edition, the official translation of nearly all his work into English, became 23 volumes of theoretical and clinical writing, and he wrote hundreds of letters. It was through studies on hysteria written with Breuer, the interpretation of dreams, three essays on the theory of sexuality of 1905, jokes and their relation to the unconscious, the psychopathology of everyday life, the future of an illusion, and civilization its discontents in 1929 that Freud made his name. 
As Freud's work became known beyond the confines of Vienna through his writing and his personal influence, the psychoanalytic movement, as it was soon called, grew out of the informal Wednesday evening meetings started by Freud in 1902 for the curious and for interested fellow professionals. The first International Psychoanalytic Congress was held in Salzburg in 1908, and in 1910, the International Psychoanalytic Association was founded. In 1909, Freud made his first and only trip to America and gave lectures at Clark University. In 1917, during the First World War, in which his son saw active service, Freud discovered a growth on his palate, which was finally diagnosed in 1923 as cancer, which, despite operations, he suffered from intermittently for the rest of his life, though he continued to work to the end. In 1919, his favourite daughter Sophie died of influenza, aged 26, and in 1930, his mother died at the age of 95. In 1938, after living and working in Vienna for nearly 60 years, Freud fled to London from the Nazis with his daughter Anna, also a psychoanalyst, where he died in 1939. The facts of a life, and indeed the facts of life, were among the many things that Freud's work has changed our way of thinking about. Freud's work shows us not merely that nothing in our lives is self-evident, that not even the facts of our lives speak for themselves, but that facts themselves look different from a psychoanalytic point of view. The facts of psychoanalysis, Freud wrote, have a habit of being rather more complicated than we like. If they were as simple as all that, perhaps, it might not have needed psychoanalysis to bring them to light. Psychoanalysis reveals complications that we would rather not see. Before psychoanalysis, Freud implies, the facts seemed simple. Now they seem complicated. Bringing to light might mean recovering something buried or seeing something in a new light. Freud is not saying here that psychoanalysis has revealed new facts, but that it has revealed new aspects of the facts. The facts were always there, but now we can see them differently. What complicates the facts, in Freud's view, are what he will come to call the unconscious, infantile sexuality and the death drive. So, for example, the fact that Freud invented psychoanalysis, mostly out of conversations with men, but through the treatment mostly of women, can tell us something, from a psychoanalytic point of view, about Freud's homosexual and heterosexual desire. He will show us how and why we bury the facts of our lives and how, through the language of psychoanalysis, we can both retrieve these facts and describe them in a different way. Though his writing is dominated, for reasons which will become clear, by archaeological analogies, by the archaeologist as hero, the practice of psychoanalysis was, Freud increasingly discovered, difficult to find analogies for. What Freud was in no doubt about, though, was the value of heroism and the discovery of psychoanalysis as somehow his own heroic project. His writing is studied with references to great men, Plato, Moses, Hannibal, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Goethe, Shakespeare, among others, most of them artists, and all of them, in Freud's account, men who defined their moment, not men struggling to assimilate to their societies, like many of the Jews of Freud's generation. Self-defining men, men pursuing their own truths against the constraints of tradition. In Freud's myth of his own heroism, created in the interpretation of dreams, he was a man who would face in a new way the facts of his own life. He used as his epigraph to the book a line from Virgil's Aeneid, If I can't bend those above, I'll stir the lower regions. Through psychoanalysis, the introspective hero born of romanticism went in search of scientific legitimacy. We spend our lives, Freud will tell us in his always lucid prose, not facing the facts, the facts of our history in all their complication, and above all, the facts of our childhood. Freud sees modern adults as people who cannot recover from their childhoods. 
as people who have a child's view of what an adult is. He will show us how ingenious we are at not knowing ourselves and how knowing ourselves, or the ways in which we've been taught to know ourselves, not least through the conventions of autobiography and biography, has become the problem rather than the solution. What we are suffering from, Freud will reveal, is all the ways we have of avoiding our suffering. And our pleasure, Freud will show us, the pleasure we take in our sexuality, the pleasure we take in violence, is the suffering we are least able to bear. And to face all these improbable facts, we need a different way of listening to the stories of our lives and a different way of telling them. And indeed, a different story about pleasure and pain. A story about nothing but the psychosomatic development of the growing child in the family and the individual in his society. And a story with no religion in it. Instead of God as the organizing idea, there is the body in the family. Psychoanalysis, which started as an improvisation in medical treatment, became at once, if not a new language, a new story about these fundamental things and a new story about stories. For Freud, the modern individual is ineluctably autobiographical and his symptoms are one of the forms his autobiography takes. The body treated only with words inevitably linked Freud as a doctor with the more literary arts. Indeed, he was slightly bemused to discover that his early case histories, in which, as he wrote, quote, there is an intimate connection between the story of a patient's suffering and the symptoms of his illness, read, as he put it, like short stories. In a psychomantic treatment, the patient tells the story of their lives by saying whatever comes into their heads. It is an unusual way of telling a story and of giving and taking a history. So one of the first casualties of psychoanalysis, once the facts of our lives are seen as complicated in the Freudian way, is the traditional biography. After psychoanalysis, all our narratives of the past, indeed all our coherence and plausibility, are suspect in a new way. They hide more than they seek. History begins to sound like fiction, and fiction begins to sound peculiarly wishful. So the history of the period of Freud's time and place, the background, as it were, of traditional biography, can also be read with these new Freudian complications in mind. Not that the historical facts are not true, but that the telling of them might be prone to simplification, and particularly when they are at their most devastating. We have to be attentive, Freud says, to the wishfulness at work, even in our most painful stories, especially in our most painful stories. Freud lived through, what is, in what is by now a familiar account, the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the rise of nationalism, the cataclysm of the First World War and the build-up to the Second World War, the emergence of communism and the rise of fascism, the increasing emancipation of the Jews and the beginnings of their possible extinction. It was an era of fragile democracies and unstable aristocracies, of an inexhaustible capitalism and of economic depression, of the detraditionalizing of societies and of an exorbitant arms race. But Freud's work, as among other things, a theory of reading, wants to undo our confidence in familiar formulations, especially familiar formulations about the past. Freud wants us to be wary of our temptation to make catchphrases out of history, our temptation to be too eagerly convinced by our fictions and our formulations. We are always, in Freud's view, trying to contain the uncontainable. However horrifying the facts, for Freud, history is always more horrifying and so more elusive than we can let ourselves know, as though he also had an inkling of just how horrifying it was to become. His sisters that remained in Vienna all died in concentration camps. Only the censored past can be lived with, Freud was discovering. 
From a psychoanalytic point of view, modern people were as much the survivors of their history as the makers of it. We make histories so as not to perish of the truth. The psychoanalyst, then, is a historian who shows us that our histories are also the way we conceal the past from ourselves, the way we both acknowledge it and disavow it at the same time. To disavow it is one way or another to simplify it. To acknowledge it is to allow complication. After the great Darwin, as Freud called him, another of Freud's heroes, we are creatures of an appetite to survive and reproduce. And because we are desiring creatures in an uncomfortable world, we are, like all animals, endangered by our desiring and therefore self-protective. But unlike other animals who, because they have no language, have no cultural history, we also feel endangered by our histories. There is nothing we want to protect ourselves from more, in Freud's view, than our personal and family histories. For many people, <coughs> Freud was finding the past had become a kind of phobic object, concealed in sentimental nostalgia and myths of race and national history. Through psychoanalysis, which was clearly a response to these increasingly insistent contemporary questions, Freud, to, Freud tried to work out the ways in which we are unduly self-protective, the senses in which modern people suffer from their self-protectiveness. In Freud's view, we are defensive creatures simply because we have so much to defend ourselves against. Our fears of the external world are second only to our fears of the internal world of memory and desire, and both are warranted. It was Freud, of course, that made the ordinary word defensive such an important and ordinary part of common currency. Psychoanalysis, whatever else it is, is a dictionary of modern fears. The acknowledged past, both personal and transgeneration, always threatens to destroy our belief in the future. Or, as Freud intimated, modern people were beginning to feel the burden of their pasts in new ways. With the rise of historical research and scientific methods of inquiry, not to mention autobiography, they knew more about their lives than ever before. We can't now take in the horror of our histories. And this became for Freud implicitly a reflection about his own history as a Jew, as well as a more general account that he was keen to universalize. Freud's fear that psychoanalysis could be misunderstood to be a Jewish science went some way to acknowledging that the history of the Jews might also be somewhere bound up in it. We take refuge in plausible stories, Freud tells us, in his own partly plausible story called Psychoanalysis. We fear the immediacy of experience, the immediacy of instinctual desire, and the overwhelming pressures of contemporary reality. And so we represent it to ourselves as symptoms and knowledge, our forlorn and noble forms of mastery. So fearful are we in living our lives now, we seek as much intelligibility as we can get, but our wish to make sense of our lives, our wish to make our lives sound sensible, or at least intelligible, has become an ironic acknowledgement of just how unknowing and wishful we really are. A measure not only of our terror, but of our overinvestment in progress as the acquisition of knowledge and coherence as the sign of knowledge. And the we, Freud is always referring to, was possibly, he thought, not the fin de siècle of Viennese middle class that he knew, but the entire human race. Freud, in other words, in the way of the great 19th century European intellectuals, was also a great generalizer. Freud, in actuality, met a very small group of people in his life, like everybody else. But universalizing a point was a way of rhetorically enforcing it. One of Freud's most interesting papers, for example, he entitled On the Universal Tendency to Debasement in the Sphere of Love. As a young man, by all accounts, Freud, like many young people with intellectual tendencies, was more interested in reading than in sociability. 
Don Quixote was one of his favorite books. The psychoanalyst he became was as interested in whether we can experience ourselves as in whether we can know ourselves. And above all, in how knowledge, especially self-knowledge, can become a refuge from experience. But one of the things we'll notice in Freud's writing is not the dogmatic narrow-mindedness, dogmatic narrow-minded knowingness for which he has become famous, but an absorbing and wide-ranging skepticism. His three essays on sexuality, one of the early groundbreaking books of psychoanalysis, ends with what Freud calls the unsatisfactory conclusion, quote, that we know far too little to construct from our fragmentary information a theory adequate to the understanding alike of normal and pathological conditions, end of quote. Nearly 150 pages of extraordinary speculation end with Freud's virtual undoing of the whole project and with a reminder that what we call sexuality is itself a constructed theory, not simply a natural fact. What Freud discovers is the impossibility of normalizing sexuality and that the sexual is what we always want to normalize. And this is because, he writes, quote, sexuality is the weak spot in cultural development. So Freud will be inclined to say, as his detractors always claim, that everything is sexual without his ever quite knowing what the sexual is, or indeed what it might mean to know about or understand sexuality. Freud, we can almost say, was interested in sex because it was one of the forms that personal history takes, one of the areas of the individual's life where the biographer and the autobiographer are struck by something and falter and never quite know what to make of it. Freud became preoccupied in his work, in other words, not only with increasing our knowledge of human nature, but also with those moments when knowing breaks down, when it doesn't work, when something other than knowledge becomes an object of desire. What interrupts our concentration as readers may be as telling as the book we're reading. Freud is always making the case for interruption. We make a Freudian slip when we thought we knew what we were saying. We dream beyond the bounds of intelligibility. We unwittingly repeat what we hate about ourselves. Freud, that is to say, charts the development of the unknowing and largely unknowable modern individual in a culture obsessed by knowledge, of the distracted and disrupted individual whose continuities and traditions are breaking down around her. Where progress was demanded, Freud found regression and the allure of the past. Where predictability was wanted, he found the disarray of desire and self-destructiveness. Where laws of human nature or of history were sought, he found only, in the title of one of his finest papers, Instincts and Their Vicissitudes. So after Freud, if we, if we are to take him on his own terms, our knowledge of his or of anyone else's life, and indeed our wish for knowledge about his life, has to be tempered with a certain irony. Because it was precisely the stories we tell ourselves about our lives and about other people's lives that Freud put into question that Freud taught us to read differently. Freud helped us, if that is the right word, to see our lives as both ineluctably determined and utterly indeterminate, as driven by repetitions but wholly unpredictable, as inspired by unconscious desire and only intermittently intelligible, and then only in retrospect. There was the unfolding of the individual's psychobiological potential, the so-called life cycle with its developmental stages, and there was something less surely plotted less explicable, called the life story. Freud wanted to bring these two inextricable things together in the science of psychoanalysis, but with a great deal of uncertainty about whether this was possible. And partly because Freud was discovering that we obscure ourselves from ourselves in our life stories, that is their function. 
So we will often find that the most dogmatic thing about Freud as a writer is his scepticism. He's always pointing out his ignorance, almost boasting about it, without quite ever needing to. He's always showing us what our knowing keeps coming up against, what our desire to know might be a desire for. It is sexuality and death-dealing aggression, the subjects to which Freud's work is always returning, that renders us, in his view, incoherent, that exposes the limits of our language and of our self-knowledge. There is what he calls the silence of a death instinct working inside us and an insatiable sexual hunger, quote, incapable of obtaining complete satisfaction, that resists and that resists our sense-making. Our histories, at their most fundamental, are stories of need, in Freud's account, of sexuality and violence and of scarcity, of irresolvable conflict and unavoidable ambivalence. Where we love, we always hate, and vice versa. We are wanting more life for ourselves, but we're also wanting, in one of Freud's memorable phrases, to die in our own way. We want to get better, but we love our suffering. What Freud increasingly found most difficult to cure in his patients was their mostly unconscious wish not to be cured. In his search for cures, Freud found out just how incurable we are. As we shall see, Freud developed psychoanalysis by describing how it didn't work. Clinically, his failures were often more revealing than his successes. By showing us what psychoanalysis couldn't do, he showed us what it was and what it was up against. It was part of Freud's considerable ambition to reveal in no uncertain terms the limits of psychoanalytic ambition. What is a theory of wishing if not a theory of exorbitant ambition? And yet, in what Freud saw as our instinct-driven lives, there seemed to be a margin of freedom, a place for rationality and choice. He agreed implicitly with Swift that you can't reason a person out of something they weren't reasoned into. But he did discover that he could sometimes psychoanalyze people out of or through their most anguished predicaments. There was an Enlightenment Freud who believed we might be more sensible and law-abiding, that knowledge, and particularly the knowledge generated by the methods of science, could dispel superstition and free us from some old-fashioned tyrannies. A Freud who went on believing in the beneficial uses of explanation and understanding, in the value of putting words to things, who believed that the conversation he had invented, called psychoanalysis, could improve our lives, even if it could only, in another memorable phrase, transform hysterical misery into ordinary human unhappiness. Who hoped that knowledge and desire may not be at odds with each other. And then there was an anti-enlightenment Freud, who, as time went on, found it harder and harder to believe in most of these things, and yet without ever losing his belief in the value and the values of psychoanalysis. Indeed, how Freud kept faith with psychoanalysis as it evolved, that is, how what he calls the unconscious never lost its grip on him, is the central drama of Freud's life. It was this relationship between desiring and knowing, between the unconscious and what he called the ego, between ourselves as creatures of initially uncultured appetite and creatures of cultured knowledge that fascinated Freud. Psychoanalysis became an inquiry into what, if anything, knowing had to do with desiring, and indeed about what telling one's life story had to do with desiring. Freud's initial hope was that life stories were sustainers of appetite. But it was, as Freud was to remark on several occasions, and it's a remark we must take to heart in any consideration of Freud's life, it was the pursuit of knowledge that inspired him as a younger man, and indeed as an older man. 
He felt, he wrote in his autobiographical study, quote, no particular partiality for the position and activity of a physician in these early years, nor, by the way, later. Rather, I was moved by a sort of greed for knowledge. Not religion, not politics, not medicine, not sexuality, not healing and helping, but knowledge. And the pursuit of knowledge would be another casualty of the psychoanalytic enterprise as Freud began to describe it as simply another form our ingenious and ubiquitous sexuality could take. The satisfactions of knowing were derivatives, in his view, sublimations, to use his rather obscure term, of the more immediate, the more sensuous pleasures of childhood. Not that the person intent on knowledge was a failed sensualist, but a troubled one, in thrall, as we all are, not simply to her desires, but to the conflict around and about her desires. What some modern people couldn't help but notice after Freud, through their symptoms, their dreams, their slips of the tongue, and their bungled ambitions, especially modern people who were no longer religious believers, was just how unconscious they were, how removed from a clear sense of their own intentions, how determinedly ignorant they could be about their desires. And in Freud's language, this meant how conflicted they were about their appetites, and so how fundamentally divided they were against themselves as if people no longer knew what was in their best interests, or what their interests were, or indeed whether they had best interests. Modern people could live as if they couldn't care less about themselves. They would, for example, risk everything or nothing at all for money or for love, for safety or excitement. It was confounding after Darwin to discover that man, as he was then called, was the animal that deliberately estranged himself from his own nature, that suffered above all from his capacity for adaptation. In Freud's account, it had become all too human to discard survival and reproduction as the aims of life, all too human to adapt, i.e. to assimilate and to conform, at the cost of vitality. From a psychoanalytic point of view, even the Darwinian facts seemed too simple. Like all writers, Freud, of course, writes out of a specific historical moment. But what he often seems to be writing about is just how difficult it is to know what is specific about any historical moment what the facts are, or indeed what any individual is going to make of her own times, what the facts are for her. Partly because the past so insistently informs the present, our seeing the present in the terms of the past is what he will call transference, but also because our reconstructions of the past are inspired by our desires for and fears about the future. And partly because of the individual's idiosyncratic psychic metabolism that Freud was unusually attentive to. In Freud's work, the individual is always making something of her history, whether or not she is making her own history. In what was soon to be called mass societies, it was the individual voice in all its singularity that Freud was most interested in. For Freud, we are desiring creatures, creatures who look forward with certain satisfactions in mind, but each with and through a different history. All history for Freud is the rewriting of history because the past is something we rewrite to make a future for ourselves. And in this sense, our pasts are inherently unstable. As early as 1896, Freud referred in a letter to what he would eventually call deferred action. I am working on the assumption, he wrote to Wilhelm Fleece in December of that year, that our psychic mechanism has come into being by a process of stratification. The material present in the form of memory traces being subjected from time to time to a rearrangement in accordance with fresh circumstances, to a retranscription. End of quote. The individual keeps rewriting his history even though his biographer cannot. 
We may want another biography of someone, but we don't want another biography by the same biographer. It is, as Freud both intimates and enacts in his writing, in his return to and reworking of the same preoccupations, the inability to rewrite the past that the individual suffers from, and that makes the biographer such an unreliable witness in his view. A biography, like a symptom, fixes a person in a story about themselves. Freud draws our attention to this work of representing the personal and cultural past in words. When his patients started giving an account of themselves in psychoanalysis, it was this work of distortion and disguise and censorship, work that all too easily becomes inhibited, but work potentially of great vision and imagination that Freud found himself hearing and listening into. He discovered through his invention of the psychoanalytic situation that in the speaking and writing of history, memory and desire were inextricable. Indeed, memory was of desire, that our histories, whatever else they are, are coded stories about what we wanted in the past and about what was missing in that past and about what we want in the future and about what we might fear in that future. Words, Freud assumed, are the tools of needs and desire. And since there can be no history without language, it's the individual's history of needing and desiring that must be reconstructed as far as is possible in psychoanalytic treatment. Psychoanalysis enables the patient to recover their desire by representing their history to a new kind of attentive listener. But Freud wants us to remember that need is where we begin and language is what we acquire. Language is at once a deferred pleasure and a formative adaptation and estrangement. And this was at the centre of Freud's work. On virtually every page of Freud's writing, as the French analyst Lacan remarks, there is a reference to language. Freud's account of the talking cure, unsurprisingly, has within it theories about language and how it works, but not theories informed by the modern science of linguistics, which was not then available to him. The individual's always ongoing acquisition of language, his relationship to the language he inherits and the language he speaks, was one of Freud's primary concerns. When he's describing the unconscious and how it works, it often sounds as though he's describing the working of a language. The treatment of psychoanalysis itself was conducted only in words. And Freud was as much, if not more, of a writer than a doctor. So Freud's work, we also need to remember, is of a piece with much of the great modernist literature, all of which was written in his lifetime, a literature in which the coherent narratives of and about the past were put into question, and, of course, in all the other arts and the sciences, and in the overlap between them in psychiatry, philosophy, and sociology. This was a period of extraordinary energy and invention and improvisation. Vienna, where Freud lived for virtually his entire life, was the eye of the storm that became known as modernism and was the birthplace of the linguistic philosophy that came to dominate the 20th century. Psychoanalysis was to be at once Freud's resistance and his assimilation to this newly emerging modern culture he found himself in and grew up in. And in getting a sense of Freud's life, a version of it, we'll need to notice both where he protests and where he complies. What in his contemporary culture he found compelling, the collecting of antiquities, for example, and the smoking of cigars, and what he was indifferent to. He had, for example, no interest in contemporary art and was dismissive of surrealism, which owed so much to him. He had no interest whatsoever in opera or music, something of a feat in the Vienna of his time. We will need to notice what Freud used the language of psychoanalysis to talk about, childhood, sexuality, aggression, biography, the unconscious, and what he used it to mostly avoid talking about, politics, economics, class, and mysticism. We will have to see, in other words, which of the cultural conversations of the time Freud wanted to join in and which he avoided. 
what Freud needed psychoanalysis to liberate himself from and what kind of imprisonment it liberated him for. In 1859, three years after Freud was born, Darwin published On the Origin of Species. In 1939, the year Freud died, Joyce published Finnegan's Wake. This is one way of imagining the timeline of Freud's life, the disrupted narratives of time and of the times he lived through and contributed to so dramatically. Like so many of the people of Freud's generation, the world he grew up in was unrecognisable to the world he died in. It could only be remembered, or rather to use a psychoanalytic term, reconstructed, because so much had been lost. Eric Hobsbawm entitled his history of the 20th century The Age of Extremes, and Niall Ferguson subtitled his history of the century History's Age of Hatred, because a seismic disturbance was being registered. In the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, in Freud's lifetime, Europe was radically transformed, and in ways in which we may only just be beginning to understand or even get glimpses of. It was not a world turned upside down, but a world less coherent, less picturable than that. Freud's life and psychoanalysis itself are glimpses of those times, at once a product and Freud's protest against them through the choices he made. The new stories and the new ways of telling stories, even the ways of not telling stories or of finding alternatives to narrative coherence or the philosophical investigations of Wittgenstein, were, like psychoanalysis, signs of the times, both symptomatic and diagnostic. They were part of the process of people making sense of their modern lives, ways of working out both what kind of sense was now possible and whether it was sense that was now needed. And psychoanalysis, the project of Freud's life, needs to be seen as part of the history of storytelling as much as the history of medicine. Certain symptoms, Freud realized, were stories in abeyance, stories waiting to be told but felt to be untellable. There were symptoms where there couldn't be words, where words were forbidden or unavailable. Talking about symptoms, Freud began to find, was one of the ways in which people could make sense, could talk about what mattered most to them, about what made their lives worth living or not. Freud read pathology as though it were an uncompleted conversation, a modern way of talking, a language. Psychoanalysis became a story about why people couldn't speak and about what it was they could not speak about. And Freud himself could speak by speaking about these things. Genius, Sartre once wrote, is the word we use for people who get themselves out of impossible situations. Whether or not Freud was a genius, and genius was one of the many words Freud changed our sense of, psychoanalysis was the conversation Freud invented to get himself and other people through the impossible situations of their lives, the impossible situations that their lives had become in a modern world. And this involved, as I say, giving a different kind of account of what a life story is, is, or indeed of what a history was, both what a person might be doing, wittingly and unwittingly, in telling something of her life, or indeed in telling something of someone else's life, which a life story always involves, and what a person might be wanting not to do in the telling of their life. These were things in a li- there were things in a life that seemed to resist articulation, and there were things it was clearly forbidden to say. So a biography of Freud, a biography after Freud, in other words, has to begin has to briefly set the scene, so to speak, with Freud's own misgivings about biography and about biography as an impossibility, with, in short, the idea of the impossible life. The idea that is at the heart of psychoanalysis that there's something impossible about the living and the telling of our modern lives, 
Impossible in the sense that we cannot see possibilities for leading good lives, for political justice, for living without religious consolation, for sexual satisfaction and relations between the sexes, although there are none. The childhood is inherently catastrophic and unrecoverable from. When Freud famously said that psychoanalysis was the impossible profession, he was giving us an important clue about the life he'd invented for himself. A life, it turns out, that the young Sigmund Freud wanted no one to know about. Psychoanalysis would one day be Freud's proof that biography is the worst kind of fiction, that biography is, in fact, what we suffer from, that it is, as Karl Krauss, the Viennese satirist, famously remarked about psychoanalysis, the symptom that is purporting to be the cure. When psychoanalysis works, it cures people of their need to be their own biographers. So it is, as they say, of interest that for Freud, at the very beginning of his professional life, biographers were the enemy. We need to note that before the inventions of psychoanalysis, Freud believed that a life was not the kind of thing that could or should be known about, that life stories were an attempt to mislead. Freud, in fact, as Hermione mentioned, had a lifelong aversion to biography and to biographers. He was not averse to biographical speculation himself. In his writings, there are speculative biographical accounts of Shakespeare, Michelangelo, and Leonardo, among others. But his misgivings about biography were a way of saying also important things about psychoanalysis, of defining psychoanalysis by saying what it was not, or what he hoped it was not. When the writer Arnold Zweig offered to write Freud's biography in 1936, Freud replied with excessive, that is, unusually self-revealing, rancor. To be a biographer, he wrote to Zweig, you must tie yourself up in lies, concealment, hypocrisies, false colorings, and even in hiding a lack of understanding. For biographical truth is not to be had, and if it were to be had, we could not use it. Truth is not feasible, mankind doesn't deserve it, and anyway, isn't our Prince Hamlet right when he says that if we all had our desserts, which of us would escape whipping? End of quote. The biographer deceives himself and others, his subject is exposed as culpable, and the reader is not worthy of biographical truths, even if they could be told, which they can't. In biography, the truth is neither available, useful, nor feasible. But in psychoanalysis, Freud intimates, which deals with similar material, it may be, it may be. The analyst doesn't have to give a misleading account of the patient because he can check it against the patient's account. And he doesn't have to position himself as judge or indeed as in any way punitive. Unlike a biography and indeed unlike Hamlet, psychoanalysis is a conversation and not a piece of writing. It doesn't have a beginning, a middle and an end. The patient has the opportunity to speak for himself, to answer back, to go on with the conversation. A different way of being truthful is available to both the analyst and the patient. The unconscious has no biography. Biographical truth is not to be had, but personal truth may be, and it may be useful, feasible, and something to which we may be entitled. And then, of course, there is the possibility that Freud is being so defensive here because he also feels that the analyst and the biographer may be more similar than he would wish. Psychoanalysis does, after all, trade only in biographical truth. And that something immoral, something suspect about the analyst is exposed by the art of biography. Perhaps the role of the psychoanalyst, as many of its critics would say, ties the analyst up in lies, concealments, hypocrisies, false colorings, and even in hiding a lack of understanding. And perhaps what psychoanalysis can only ever reveal is how disreputable the patient always really is. At its most minimal, Freud reveals here what the lifelong practice of psychoanalysis had left him feeling about so-called human nature. 
And we may wonder what the effect of this was on the way he and his followers practiced psychoanalysis. Did a life of psychoanalysis leave him feeling like the biographer he described? And were the motives of the psychoanalyst comparable to the biographers, who, Freud claimed in his essay on Leonardo da Vinci, quote, sacrificed truth to an illusion and for the sake of their infantile fantasies abandoned the opportunity of penetrating the most fascinating secrets of human nature, end of quote. It was the more intimate and strange conversations of psychoanalysis that was the real opportunity for such penetrating inquiries, Freud believed. And yet he couldn't help but wonder how the psychoanalyst's infantile fantasies, the psychoanalyst's buried past, affected the treatment, nor indeed what it was that the analyst wanted from the patient, let alone the biographer from their subject, other, that is, than his money. One way or another, Freud and the new professional he had invented, the psychoanalyst, was shadowed by the biographer, by Freud's misgivings about what the biographer might be up to and what the psychoanalyst might be up to. At a time when the boundaries between the public and the private life were shifting, Freud, as it turns out, was to become the great defender of the privacy of the self. Psychoanalysis, unlike biography, and unlike the gossip and the journalism that was rife in Viennese society, was a refuge from the public exposure of everyday life a setting in which the self, or whatever a modern person was deemed to be, could be talked of and considered in confidence and confidentiality. If the public project was all too often about dismantling and simplifying the aura of the powerful, and Freud, of course, was to be the victim of this, the project of psychoanalysis was the provision of secluded, private time and space to discuss the individual's failing powers, and to discover, by the same token, what curiosity about another person and the other person that was oneself was good for. So we must begin the biography of Freud with one scene in mind, a scene he described in a letter of 1885 to his fiancée, Martha Bernays. One intention, as a matter of fact, I have almost finished carrying out, he writes. An intention which a number of as yet unborn and unfortunate people will one day resent. Since you won't guess what kind of people I'm referring to, I will tell you at once. They are my biographers. I have destroyed all my notes of the past 14 years, as well as letters, scientific excerpts, and the manuscripts of my papers. As for letters, only those from the family have been spared. Yours, my darling, were never in danger. In doing so, all old friendships and relationships presented themselves once again and then silently received the coup de grace. My imagination is still living in Russian history. All my thoughts and feelings about the world in general, about myself in particular, have been found unworthy of further existence. They will now have to be thought all over again. But that stuff settles round me like sand drifts round the Sphinx. Soon, nothing but my nostrils would have been visible above the paper. I couldn't have matured or died without worrying about who would get hold of those old papers. Everything, moreover, that lies beyond the great turning point in my life, beyond our love and my choice of profession, died long ago and must not be deprived of a worthy funeral. As for the biographers, let them worry. We have no desire to make it too easy for them. Each one of them will be right in his opinion of the development of the hero, and I'm already looking forward to seeing them go astray. At nearly 30, with no distinctive professional achievements, Freud thinks of himself as a hero, the man who will be worthy not of one biography, but of many. And it's essential to the identity of this hero that he has to make a clean break with the past. It's not, we should note, family letters that are destroyed. And this attempt to eradicate not the past, but evidence of the past, 
not to mention this sense of being buried, of being suffocated by the past, will be what he discovers in his future psychoanalytic patients. One of the shibboleths of psychoanalysis is that there is no such thing as a fresh start. There is the overriding commitment to love and work, the defining values of the psychoanalytic ethos, and there is the reference to the Sphinx, alluding to the myth of Oedipus that will be at the centre of Freud's work. But the people he wants to outwit and provoke, the unfortunate people, are the biographers, all of whom will have their versions, but all of them will get it wrong. Freud wants to fascinate and sabotage his biographers. As we shall see, he was to devote his life to the provoking and undoing of the biographer's work. Thank you.